I like cemeteries. And to some, that might sound a little strange. Others, they may understand that. I like cemeteries. I, I like cemeteries really for two reasons. Number one, they're usually, they're usually pretty. You, you know, you've got the trees and, and everything's well kept and mowed. And, you know, you can walk through the cemetery and you can look at things and you can, you know, remember people and so forth. I also like cemeteries because it's, I think it's about the only place that you can go where everybody's getting along. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you go, somebody's got something, right? But if you go to a cemetery, it's pretty quiet, nobody's complaining. And so it's kind of a nice place to be once in a while. We live by a cemetery out, by, uh, out in West Mansfield, and... and Sam and I usually go for a walk, usually at least once a year, and he's just, he's just getting to the place where he's beginning to understand this. Um, here in about a month, uh, we'll walk through the cemetery, and he'll, he'll ask about the flags and things that people put out uh, at the gravestones, and we'll have this, this conversation. And I, we've done this in the past, but I, he doesn't remember, right? Um, I remember everything my father ever taught me, but I'm not sure he's going to remember this, right? Um, but he's getting to the place where we still have these. And, and as you walk through, as you go through, you see uh, some of the engravings on the stone. And you get to read the history a little bit. You, you get to read a, about them and where they came from and, you know, how long they lived. Sometimes there's, there's a fair bit on that, and sometimes there's not. But in the cemetery around our house, and, and you've probably seen this in various cemeteries, there's, there's a lot of them that are worn out, you know, worn out with time and, and smudged out. And there's really a, a desire, at least when we're walking through, to read that. I want to know who that is, or, or I want to know, uh, you know, when they lived and sort of some of the things that were said or accomplished that many of these things have inscribed on them. I, and we don't get to pick that, do we? I, I suppose you could try, maybe before you pass away, write something down. Here, this is what I want on my tombstone. But most of the time, we don't pick that. Somebody else picks it for us if we have something written. I, I, I don't know what it's going to say on mine. Maybe nothing at all. Maybe here lies a you know, guy. But maybe if we could choose, I, I wonder if it would be something like this. In the 34th chapter of Deuteronomy, that's the last chapter in Deuteronomy, it's the last chapter in the, in the Pentateuch, there in the Torah, we find this in verse 5, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. This was written sometime after the Exodus story. This is written sometime after the death of Moses. Uh, to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. That's written there for a reason. Uh, we'll find out here in just a moment. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, 
whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again. We have the gift of study, the gift of knowledge, the gift of learning about your character and about the beauty and, and, and the breadth and width of your love, Father. We thank you that we get to learn from your servant Moses today. In Jesus' name, amen. That's, uh, that's quite an epitaph. And uh, I, I don't know if I could choose, if I could pick, maybe that'd be something that I would want on my gravestone. One who knew the Lord face to face. We've been talking about this, uh, this truth of being justified by faith. To be justified means to be declared and treated as righteous. To be declared and treated as righteous. Think about this now. Think about the impl implications of that. God treating you as righteous because of Jesus Christ. That's justification, and that is the state of those who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so we're going through some of these characters in the Old Testament, looking not at the high points of their life, but at the low points of their life. You see, we look at some of these men, uh, Abraham, Moses, David, and we think of them as heroes, and we think that there's this bar that's unreachable. And because of this bar, then these, these men are considered righteous. But when we see the truth, we realize, especially last week, that Abraham had all kinds of problems. In fact, Abraham committed sins I'd never even dreamed of committing. Yet he's called God's friend, one who honors God. God knew Abraham. And why? Because even with all of his sins and all of his mistakes and all of his problems and troubles, he still believed God. He trusted God. Well, how does that work? What are these moments of faith even when we sin? We get to look at that today with Moses. And, and this is kind of subtitled, at least in my notes, Moses' Finest Hour. Moses' Finest Hour. Like Abraham, we see Moses very often as a good man. Moses was the man God chose to lead the people out of captivity in Egypt through the Exodus story, right? Through the wilderness to the promised land, Canaan, the land God promised to Abraham. I mean, this story is known by those who don't even know Scripture. This story is known by those who barely know anything about Jesus Christ. They've heard about the Exodus story. They've heard about these wonders in Egypt. And this happened many, many years ago. We're still talking about it. We're still learning from it. We see Moses as this larger-than-life figure, this colossal man who was good and had this bar raised, we think, to perfection. Again, the instrument God used to lead people. Moses parted the Red Sea, all right? He was the instrument God used to do that. Brought water from rocks, defeated armies, gave the very law of God to the people, Moses performed wonders and miracles, the likes of which have not been repeated throughout history. Surely this was a good man. And our job, we think, is to achieve this bar that Moses set. 
Surely this was a man who must have earned his justification, earned his righteousness before God. This is a man that we can imitate in our lives, copy in our lives. And perhaps one of the greatest achievements or titles that Moses has is one whom the Lord knew face to face. What an impossible bar. If that's what it takes to be justified, can anyone possibly be justified? Well, let's look at some of these accomplishments. And we're going to be moving around quite a bit in Scripture today. So these are going to be, as they always are, these are going to be on your screen. Uh, But you're welcome to jump around with me if you want to. First of all, let's just look at this idea that Moses was a good man. Moses was a good man. Here's the problem with good. Good means good. Good means good. Good doesn't mean halfway good. Good doesn't mean sometimes good. Good doesn't mean part-time good. I'll tell you what good doesn't mean. Good doesn't mean good except for this, 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 and this in my life. Good means good. And that good definition is set by the character of God Himself. So be real careful when we look at ourselves and say, I'm good. Good's a pretty high standard. We look at Moses and we think of Moses as being good. One of the very first pictures we see of Moses, just, just kind of early on in his life, Exodus 2, 11 through 12, one day Moses, after growing up, he went out to where his people were. Moses was a Hebrew, just like these Hebrew slaves. He went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. You see, Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the, the household, raised in the royal household. He wasn't with the rest of the Hebrews. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Church, if we did this today, we would be arrested and tried as a murderer, and rightfully so. Today, just as then. This is not justice. I'll explain to you why this isn't justice, but this is certainly not the rule of law. You know what this is? This is vigilanteism. It's nothing more beautiful than that. It's nothing more romantic or more honorable than vigilanteism, losing your temper and killing someone. It's allowing your rage to consume you and to take the law into your own hands. Commit murder. Worse than that, this is to take over. This is to forcefully take over. This is to usurp the power and authority of God Himself. You've heard this before in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. Why? Because anybody can pay anybody evil for evil. There's a higher standard. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, we get in the way of God when we try to avenge ourselves or take vengeance on others. I really do picture this conversation between us and God, and God saying, you know, I had something planned here. I had a great piece of vengeance. Not only that, I was going to teach this person something in the process, but you jumped the gun. That's all you get. That's all you get. I had something terrific worked out. Hebrews 10 30, for we know him who said it is mine to avenge, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge His people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Deuteronomy 32, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip, the day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes on them. Even general rules of life, this is what the Proverbs are, general thoughts of wisdom that most of the time work out pretty true. Proverbs 20, 22, do not say, I'll pay, back, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and He'll avenge you. Proverbs 24, do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. It is decreed that God will carry the, Lord, the, the sword of vengeance. Now, sometimes He offers that sword to specific people in specific places at specific times. Today, in our culture, particularly the law and the state. And even then, only with trial. <clears throat> but we dress this up in our minds, don't we? we got to read this slowly. You see, we, we picture in our minds Moses coming to the rescue. That he sees an injustice being done across the way. And he runs over, right? Stands between the Hebrew and the Egyptian. you know, And he gets into a tussle. And sadly... He ends up killing this Egyptian because he's defending this Hebrew's life. You need to read this again. That's not the way this played out. Moses comes back later. He doesn't intervene in the moment. He hunts the guy down. In fact, looks this way and that before he murders him. The next day, when he finds out that some Hebrews found out about it, he's scared. This was not done in the heat of passion in the moment. This was premeditated murder. That's all it was. By the way, Moses carried a little weight. All he had to do was go to the Pharaoh and say, hey, let's do something with this guy. No, he chooses to kill him. There's nothing more, nothing more beautiful, nothing more honorable, nothing more romantic than that. So Moses flees. He runs away because now he's in trouble and he spends 40 years in the wilderness. This is 40 years in the wilderness before the other 40 years in the wilderness. He spends his life in the wilderness, all right? He's about 40 years old when he kills the Egyptian. He leaves to Midian and stays there 40 years. And then when he's 80 years old, God's going to come to him and say, hey, i got a job for you. And he spends another 40 years in the wilderness. Moses needs to be changed. That's why he goes to the wilderness. He needs to grow. He needs to be molded. He needs to trust. He needs to build his faith in God. And he needs to control his temper. I wonder if he ever learns that one. Well, he must have learned something. He must have learned his lesson in the wilderness. After all, he became a great man. It was Moses, wasn't it? Wasn't it Moses that volunteered to go back into the lion's den, to go back into Egypt before Pharaoh and lead these people to freedom? Well, that's our second thing. Moses leads the Israelites, or Moses was a great leader of men. As Moses is in the wilderness, he sees a burning bush over uh, on a mountainside. Now, he's been in the wilderness for many years, and he knows the way things work. And he sees this over on a mountainside, but this burning bush is not consumed in fire. And so he goes over to check it out. You've heard this story before. Exodus 3, 7 through 10. And the Lord said, I have indeed. The Lord speaks to Moses from this fire. 
I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying, and because of their slave drivers, I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I wonder who drew the short straw and their people got called the Parasites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God wants Moses to embark on one of the greatest events in human history. Moses is now 40 years older. He has more faith. He has more wisdom. He has more courage. And how does Moses respond? His first response is, I'm not powerful enough. Or I'm not big enough. I'm not important enough. Exodus 3.11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God has an answer for this. He says, I will go with you in verse 12. You know, all this importance and all this power and all this strength you think you lack, if you had it, it wouldn't make any difference anyway, says God, because I'm going with you. Well, surely that's enough if God's going to go with us. I mean, any good man is going to take God up on this challenge, especially if God says, I will go with you. What does Moses do? He says, I don't know what to say. Exodus 3.13, Moses said to God, suppose the Israelite, I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God tells him what to say. He doesn't hint at what to say. He doesn't suggest to Moses what to say, God point blank tells him, this is what you will say, I am sent me. Well, if I know God's going to go with me, and I know he's going to tell me what to say, we might, just, might as well just go right now. That's enough. After all, Moses is a good man. Isn't he a great leader? What does Moses say? But they won't believe me. This is excuse number three. Exodus 4.1, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? And say, the Lord did not appear to you. This is where God grants him signs and wonders. This is the first time God tells him to throw his staff on the ground and it become a serpent. Well, I've got the signs, I've got the wonders, I know what to say, and God's going to go with me. I think anybody in this room at this point would say, let's go. Not Moses. Moses has another excuse. He says, I can't speak well. I can't talk good, right? Exodus 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. God's got an answer for that. He says, I will teach you. I will spend time teaching you what to say and how to say it. I will give you signs and wonders. I will tell you what to say. And on top of all of that, you and I are going together. And finally, in Exodus 4.13, what does Moses say? This great leader of men, just send somebody else. Just send somebody else. This is the man God chose. I've done that. Have you done that? Just send somebody else. There's a reason... God chooses him, we'll find out here later. But now God is angry. 
Now God's angry. His anger burns against Moses at this point. And he sends his brother Aaron with him. He says, look, you need somebody to hold your hand. I know Aaron can speak. He'll go with you. But eventually Moses goes. Eventually God says go, and he sets this up for Moses, and Moses eventually obeys, though God is dragging him along every step of the way. He speaks to Pharaoh, and he's used as God's instrument to unleash plagues on Egypt, the ten plagues of Egypt. You've heard about this before. And eventually Pharaoh does let the people go, though not before Moses loses his temper in front of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 11 and almost uh, uh, ruins the entire thing. The Israelites leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea after Pharaoh goes back on his word and starts to track him down. And eventually these Israelites find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai or Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. And it's here Moses receives the law of God. This, I've never received the law of God. I was never chosen to do this, to go up on a mountainside in the presence of God. Boy, that's a high bar we're not going to reach. You have no hope of justification, right? Moses receives this sacred writing, sacred way of living, interacting with God. He's the one chosen to be in the presence of God, receive the eternal law of God. How we interact with God and the world around us. Out of all people in history, Moses has chosen to receive it into the presence of God. Over a period of 40 days, he receives this law. He receives the overarching themes, the umbrella themes, the Ten Commandments. And all the rest of the law, you know, sort of fits underneath one of those themes. And God inscribes these. God himself inscribes these on stone tablets. I don't know where they are. Eventually, they make it into the Ark of the Covenant. Eventually, the Ark of the Covenant is, is lost once the Babylonians enter and once the Babylonians take over Israel. Not recovered until the early 80s by Indiana Jones. Watched over today by top men, right? Two stone tablets. But he finally tells Moses to go back down the mountain because the people are getting restless. Here is Moses carrying the very handiwork of God. Exodus 32, 15 through 20. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant of law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. Look at this, the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory or the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing I hear. When Moses approached the camp, he sees the camp worshiping a false god. When he approaches the camp and saw the calf and the dancing... His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Now, that's pretty bad. Verse 20, he then took the calf the people made, burned it in the fire. He ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. And you don't do that without force, okay? Moses, this great leader, Moses controlling his temper, that's what it looks like. Moses, the very work of God in his hands, and what does he do? He breaks them because he cannot control his anger. So far, Moses is not measuring up to his own good bar, is he? 
I'd wager that you and I don't measure up to a good boss. And these are the people he's going to lead for 40 more years. But at least Moses wins some battles. They engage in some battles as they're crossing uh, this, this wilderness area. There's a few battles they win. There's a couple battles they lose. But there's one very important battle. And this is one of the first battles that they fight as they fight against the Amalekites. Moses is there to lead these people into victory. Well, this is true and it's not true. It's really not true that Moses wins the battles on his own. But it is his faith that allows the battles to be won by God through his servant Joshua. One particular battle, Moses must raise his arms. This is an exercise of faith so that the people will know that it's God winning these battles. And so Moses must raise his arms while the fighting is going on in the valley below. While his arms are raised, the Israelites win. But when his arms are lowered, they lose. And again, this is just God pointing to this truth that it's God controlling these things. So Moses raises his arms for a while, but then he simply can't do it anymore. Exodus 17, 8 through 13, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'm going to stand on top of this hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And here are the two heroes of the story. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Moses didn't win these battles by his own strength, his own ingenuity, his own prowess. He won these battles by faith. But you'll notice, through the exercising of faith, what did he need? He needed help. He needed help. Church, I don't know where your faith is exactly. I don't know what the battles are every day that you struggle with. But I guarantee you there's not a person that goes through their walk with Christ without help without somebody quite literally there to lift them up. This is what Aaron and Hur did to Moses. The victory was not his. The victory was not Moses. It belonged to God, and if it didn't belong to God, it belonged to Aaron and Hur. Helping Moses in his walk of faith. Well, Moses saw God face to face. We've said that this is probably the greatest title that he has. This is meant to show an incredibly close relationship between God and man, between God and Moses. Now, Moses was a very humble man. We read about this in Numbers chapter 12. But when it comes to seeing God face to face, that's something we think we'd never be able to achieve. That's something we think we would never be able to live up to. Numbers 12, and you won't have this on the screen. Numbers 12 says this. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. That's Moses' brother and sister who were coming down really hard on Moses. So God calls them out. He says, don't you dare speak ill of this man. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this isn't true with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With all the mistakes, with all the problems, with all the trouble, with all the sin, yeah. 
You want to know why? Because God does not define your life by your sins. He defines your life by your faith. He defines your life by your trust. And even knowing that, there's people who give up on their trust, give up on their faith, and still think that they've got to live the good life in order to earn the justification of God. Moses' greatness is not defined by his sin. It's defined by his trust. Verse 8, with him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Imagine that. Out of all men on earth, Moses seeing God face to face. The murderer? Yes. The one who can't control his temper? Yes. The one who didn't even want to do this in the first place? Yes, that guy. Because of his trust. Who else saw the Lord face to face? Because this is, this is rare, isn't it? To see the glory and the power of God face to face. Who else in Scripture saw God face to face? Anybody remember a man named Thaddeus? You've probably heard the name, but it might be a little difficult to place who he is. Thaddeus saw God face to face. I'll tell you who else saw God face to face. Some of the guys Thaddeus hung out with. Peter, Andrew, James. John, Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, Thomas, Judas Iscariot. Do you think they saw God face to face? You better believe they did. Sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ himself. The 5,000 that Jesus fed. The 4,000 he fed later because I guess 5,000 wasn't enough. Pharisees. Sadducees, the adulterous woman, the woman at the well sits and talks with God. These people saw God face to face. You know where God lives? God visits them. God visits these people. God visits Moses. You know where he lives? He lives in the hearts and minds, the very lives of people who believe in Jesus. You think knowing God is face-to-face is close? You think we can't achieve that type of closeness, that kind of personal interaction, that personal love? Jesus sets up his home in your life. And finally, Moses draws water from the rock. This is one of the great moments in the history of Israel. They talk about this throughout Scripture One of the great moments of the Exodus story. This actually happens twice. The people are grumbling, as they always do, as he's leading these people through the wilderness to freedom. And God tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hit this rock with your staff in the middle of the desert. It's a miracle. This is what God's doing. And so he tells Moses in Exodus chapter 17, go ahead and hit this rock. And Moses does. Water comes out of this rock. It's a great scene. And it works very well. Later on, as they get further on, almost near the end of their journey, the people are grumbling again because they're running out of water. And God tells Moses to bring water from a rock in a slightly different way. And Numbers 20, 8 through 12 says this, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. 
Speak to that rock. Don't hit it. Don't hit it. I don't want you to touch it. I don't want you to get angry. I don't want you to get upset. I want you to cool that temper. I simply want you to go up and speak to this rock. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and I will pour out its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can have a drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, This is anger once again. Listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out. Why? Because God made a promise. Well, what does he tell Moses? Verse 12, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israel, you will not bring this community into the land I will give them. Do you know when God says this? Near the end of the journey. Moses is almost 120 years old. His sister just died right before this. Aaron's about to die. An entire generation of people has been lost. Moses has lost friends throughout the wilderness. Day after day of relying upon God, day after day of obeying God, day after day of conversing with God and being forgiven in his disobedience, after parting the Red Sea, after winning battles, after confronting Pharaoh, after putting up with a rebellious and stiff-necked people threatening to kill him on multiple occasions. After he did something for 40 years that he didn't want to do in the first place, what does God tell him? You're actually not going to go in. Because you didn't treat me as holy in front of the nation. Now, we may say that this is Moses' greatest lapse of faith. I disagree. You see, I think this happens to be Moses' finest hour. Because after the discipline, after the chastisement, after the rebuke, and after realizing he'll never make it to the promised land, you know what Moses does the next day? Moses gets up and he leads his people. You want to know what faith is? Faith isn't everything going well. Faith isn't beautiful. Faith sometimes is ugly. Faith sometimes is grinding it out. And faith sometimes is after the problem, after the bad, after the curse, after the rebuke. To get up the next day and say, I'm still going to follow Jesus Christ. That's faith. And that is the finest hour of Moses. God chose Moses for a reason. We wonder why. When Moses made up excuse after excuse to lead the people, not to lead the people. This is why. Because day after day mistake after mistake, sin after sin, discipline after discipline, 
Moses gets up and he does his job. He continues to walk, believing in God. That's how you're justified, church. That's what faith is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Moses. We thank you that he continued day after day, time after time, to walk in faith. We thank you, Father, that we can treat Moses as reverent, that we can treat Moses as one that we can see as an act and a description and an example of incredible faith. And not because of his sin, but because of his perseverance. Because he trusted you even on the darkest days and the lowest points. Father, help us to read this, to know this, to realize this, and know what it means to be faithful. We thank you for the justification that you so freely give us in our faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing.
perseverance to complete the work that faith started in us. In Jesus' name.